All right. Let's work through this together here. First, we see that uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Uh, The first thing we see is when he spoke in these words, really, that that probably includes everything that we've been studying for the past few months that that he said up in the upper room. It started in John 13 with his washing of the disciples' feet, all the way to where we ended last week, the prayer that he prayed to his father. So when he had spoken these words, he left the upper room and he left Jerusalem. He went out of Jerusalem to cross the Kidron Valley to the garden. We all know that garden's name, don't we? Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, we've heard so much about. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives, and the word Gethsemane means oil press. It's because it was full of olive trees, and that's what took place in this garden. It was a beautiful place we'll talk about a little bit today. Uh, let, let's just um, let's look at a little geography here. We haven't done this in a while. I've got these beautiful maps. I don't get to use them very often, so I just like to bring them to you. So right here, this, this, is, this is Jerusalem. At the time of Christ, here's the Temple Mount right here. Uh, just so you know, it's a believed right about here is the place where the upper room was. Historically, it was over here in this part of, uh, part of Jerusalem. Uh, another interesting fact, see this little piece here looks kind of like Florida? That was the city of David when David was king. That's how big Jerusalem was at that time. Just a fun fact, in case you ever have Bible trivia. And, and so here's the Temple Mount, and I just want to show you, back here, right behind, behind here, is the, is, the, is the Valley of Kidron, and then you can see here, here's the Mount of Olives, over here, back along here is the Mount of Olives, and right about here, right across from the Temple is the Garden of Gethsemane. So you got that pictured in your mind? Now, it says they left, they left um, Jerusalem, and, they, and they, there's many gates they could have gone out of, but they left through one of these gates here or here probably and crossed this valley of Kindred. It's about 200 feet down from, from the Temple Mount down through the valley here. And there's a little creek that runs through there, a river. Now what, what's awesome about that is that during Passover, that river would be red with blood from all the slaying of the lambs. Uh, the, the last census, it was about 256,000 lambs that would be slaughtered on the day of Passover. But the only reason I tell you that, I, I don't know, I just go into this imagination station when I'm reading the Word, but can you picture Jesus taking the disciples, going down, that was for you, D. imagination, okay. She's an Odyssey fan. So you go down through this valley, and you can imagine, they had to cross this river which was covered in blood. It was blood red. So here is... Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the final sacrifice who is going to shed his blood for all who believe that they would be saved. And he's taking his disciples across this river filled with blood from all the, the temporary sacrificial lambs. I mean, all this stuff had to come back to the disciples after, after Pentecost. So that's what's going on there. They're crossing over and they're heading up into the garden over here, the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, isn't it interesting that the Lamb of God... You know, he's heading off this way with the disciples, and he's teaching them these lessons, and uh, all going on exactly when, when the Passover feast is, is being celebrated. So here they go across there. Here, I'll just give you another picture here. This is a, a current picture. This is a picture taken right from the Temple Mount, and this is, the, this is the Mount of Olives right over here. So you go down, you can't really tell the elevations, but you go down in this valley, and then you climb back up to this Mount of Olives over here. 
and right around here would have been probably the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know what you sometimes we don't picture these things accurately in the Bible. Now, just a couple other historical facts that the Garden of Gethsemane was full of private gardens at the time of Christ. They would typically be walled gardens, beautiful private gardens owned typically by wealthy families. Now, it's obvious that Jesus had befriended and probably this man believed in Jesus because they continued to go probably to the same garden, this little walled garden full of olive trees and other, other things. And that's where they would go stay. And you could tell it was a walled garden because he entered and exited from a place in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it was probably one of these private gardens. But this obviously, as you go through Scripture, was a favorite place of Jesus. We saw in the text today that was a place they frequented. Judas knew exactly where he would be because he went there so often. Of course, we all know the Olivet Discourse. But it's amazing that uh, this is also the place in the garden that's not recorded in the Gospel of John, but where Jesus cries out to God the Father, right? Remember, he's there with the eleven. He leaves eight behind. He takes the inner three out to pray pray privately. What's a tongue twister? Pray privately with the the three. And you remember, they stayed awake all night and were very good prayer warriors for Jesus. (laughs) No, they fell asleep. They couldn't stay awake. But at that time, you remember, Jesus was crying out to the Father, And three times he said, if you would, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. Three times he asked him. What was that cup? That cup was the sins of the world. It was sorrow. It was death on a cross. It was the being separated from God the Father. All those things were reflected in that cup that he asked the Father to take, but not my will, thy will be done. So this garden is a pretty, pretty special place uh, for us as it was for Jesus. Isn't it amazing in, in God's sovereignty that the first Adam was told not to eat from the tree of good and evil? He disobeyed, and it brought sin and death. And here's the Son of God praying that God, the Father would take this cup, but he's being completely obedient. He dies on a tree through his obedience, and through that he brings life and forgiveness. First Adam and the second Adam. So back to the text. Here they are. They're leaving. They're going to that place I just showed you. And we'll pick up in verse 2. Look, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place where Jesus had often met with the disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now we know what happened with Judas, right? Just a few days before this, Judas had met with the religious leaders and made the deal, right? He made the deal with the the religious leaders. I'm going to betray him. Here's the price. He worked that out, right? Now just a few hours before this, Jesus dismissed him from the upper room. You remember that? We were just there a few weeks ago. He dismissed him. And Judas went to meet with the religious leaders and say, tonight's the night. Tonight's the night we're going to do this deed. And then he leads them. He, he leads them to where he knew Jesus would be. Can you picture all that going on? Now, who's he leading here? Look at this. He's got, it says, a detachment of soldiers. Some of your translations may say a Roman cohort. A, co- a Roman cohort was 760 foot soldiers and 240 cavalry. A thousand soldiers strong. Now you say, well, did he send them all? We don't know, but we know when Paul was in danger, they sent 400-plus soldiers to guard Paul. 
And they were really, come on, the religious leaders were really terrified of what Jesus might do, right? So for them to send a thousand soldiers during Passover would not be unheard of. So we got a thousand soldiers probably coming along, some on horseback, some, some marching. Luke adds that the chief priests were also present, the Gospel of Luke. And then we had the temple police, or the temple guard were there as well. So can you picture this army coming for Jesus, right? Now, so here they are, they have torches and lanterns, right? And they're climbing, they're climbing up this Mount of Olives. Because Jesus had gone up to the Garden of Gethsemane. So these guys would be coming up this path where they could just see them marching on horses with lanterns and torches coming up towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you all picture that? So it was very visible to them looking down as this army is approaching them. Now the other interesting thing is that the Passover always takes place at a full moon, so there was no need for torches and lanterns to see. The only reason they bought, brought those most likely was they thought Jesus and the disciples were going to run away. So they would use them to find them hidden in the garden somewhere. Because they did not need to see their way to, to, to the garden. So you can, you can hear it. You can hear the, hear the swords clinking, the armor clinking, the shields. I mean, can you just picture the sight? And here's Jesus up in the garden watching them come towards him. And I love Judas. You know, Judas is in the middle of this thing. And, uh, I mean, come on. This had to be Judas's hour in the sun, Right? This had to be his best day. Right? This is what, he, this is what he had hoped for when Jesus came. That's what he's hoping he would do, is usher in a new kingdom so he could get a position of power and popularity. I mean, right now, he's the man. He's the man right now. He's got a pocket full of money, right? Everybody's following him. You've got a thousand soldiers following him, waiting for, where's Judas going? We're going to follow Judas. Even the religious leaders are coming under Judas's leadership. I mean, he thought he had it going on. I mean, he really thought he was something that day. He was, but we know it wouldn't take long until he was deceived, right? He would find out he was deceived. Because you have to realize that, you know, here, here's the world coming at him, and he believed the lies of the world. He believed that, that real joy and happiness came from money, position, power, and things. And look what happens, brothers and sisters. In only a few hours from here, he would be throwing the money back, and he'd go out and he'd be, he'd be hanging himself on a tree. He'd be killing himself. He, he very quickly found out the emptiness of the world's counterfeits, the world's, the world's glitter, that it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't bring true happiness and joy. And based on that, he went and killed himself. But for this hour, he was in his heyday. They were, they were climbing this mountain, and everybody was following him, and he really thought he was something. Now, what I want you to see here is uh, verse 4. It says, Jesus, knowing some of the things that were going to happen to him. Oh, your translation something else? It says what? He knew what? Let me hear it. He knew all that was going to happen to him. All that was going to happen to him. Do you get that? He went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Right. So, are you picturing this? This big army's coming up, thinking he's going to run and hide. He comes out to greet them. Hey, who are you looking for? This is no surprise to me. I knew all along that this was going to happen at this moment, by you, in this garden. So he comes out to greet them as they're coming to arrest him. 
because he's all-knowing. Remember, he told Peter, Peter, you're gonna, Peter, I know you're standing tall right now, but you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. He, he knew that they were going to come and arrest him. They knew, he knew they were gonna, how they were going to beat him. He knew about... What else did he know about? The crown of thorns. He knew about the nails. He knew it all. This was no surprise to Jesus. That's why he comes out and he meets his army and says, who are you looking for? (laughs) Who are you looking for? And the reason this is important to us, brothers and sisters, is we cannot cannot look at Jesus as a poor victim. Yes, we should be soured as we look... Soured? Soured? Thank you. Sourful. Thank you. We should be sourful as we reflect on the cross. But let me just tell you that some people have a false salvation based on the fact they feel so terrible about what happened to Jesus as his poor little victim. You follow me on this? That, he, that oh, they, they trapped him and they betrayed him and they, they captured him and they killed him and, and he didn't know what was going on. Right? Do you see how that can lead you to a false kind of self? Oh, I'm going to become a Christian because of what they did to poor little Jesus. I mean, look, look, look at here for a second. Look at this. It says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Who takes it? Come on, everybody. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. He says, I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. He, he, he didn't get trapped. He didn't get tricked. He didn't get you know, caught off guard. He is the only one. No one takes it from me. He chose to lay down his life. He has the authority to put it down and take it up. No one else. Because he is the Son of God. Look at this verse here. Now my soul is, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this now hour. No, it is for this very reason I came to this hour. So we see that Jesus, in all this situation and circumstances, is all-knowing, and he willingly laid out his life for you and me. He knew that was the only way to bring reconciliation with God, his father, with God the Father, his Father. Now let me just say this is an application point, brothers and sisters, is Jesus is still all-knowing. He is still all-knowing. That hasn't changed. He is still all-knowing. He knows you completely. He knows you better than you know yourselves. Amen? Amen. He knows what temptations you will face. He knows what trials you will face. He knows your life. He knows the day you will die. He knows everything. You know, it's, it's hard to even imagine that, right? I mean, I was just thinking about this. He knows everything about science. You know, he doesn't have to look anything up. <laughs> he doesn't have any reference manuals. You know, I have to look a lot of things up. And the older I get, the more things I have to look up because I forget them. But he doesn't have to look up anything on science. He knows all the languages. He knows everything about math. He knows everything about everything that's been created because he's the creator. Right? I can't even figure out how the ants are working their system out, building those homes. and I mean, everything is so complicated. How about this? He knows everything about history. Every second of history. Not general historical things. He knows everything about history. And not only this, he knows the future. 
He knows everything that's going to happen in the future. Can you imagine what it would be like to be all-knowing? He knows everything. He knows everyone. He knows every fact and figure. And he knows you. And he knows me. By name. That's our Lord. He is all-knowing. He is all-knowing. You know, I don't know about you, but a lot of times in my life, it doesn't make sense. Anybody else? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. The trials that God allows in my life, the hardships, the discouragement, the times I've fallen into temptation and acted on it and sinned against my God, I I don't understand all the things that go on. But I have a great peace that I serve a Lord that is all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows when I fall down. And he willingly stands there like the prodigal. He opens his arms to me and says, come to me. He forgives us. As we confess and repent, he welcomes us back into his family. Isn't it, doesn't it give you a great sense of peace to know that we serve a God that is all-knowing? So when life doesn't make sense to us, we go to the one that it does make sense to. Because, brothers and sisters, the things that happen to us, God allows. God allows those things to happen to us. So our prayer is, what are you trying to teach me, God? What is it you want me to learn from this trial? What in me needs to change so that I'm more acceptable to you, my king? Right? That's the kind of life we need to live. Now, of course, I just want to clarify something. I'm not talking about consequences for sin here. That's, that's a whole different deal, right? When we sin, there's consequences. He forgives us and welcomes us back into his family as we confess and repent. But there's earthly consequences that we have to face, right? I know in my life I do. I'm sure you do too. But there's a peace that comes that he is all-knowing. Now, okay, back to the text here. So here they are. They're all coming up. They're marching up the mountain, right? They get to the, they get to the garden. They're all kind of downhill from Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus says, who are you looking for, right? Now, from the other Gospels, just look up here for a second. This is the, that we learned from the Gospel of Matthew. It says, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. It was probably right where Jesus said, who are you looking for? Judas went up and kissed him. Now, in that culture, a kiss was significant. There was different places to kiss someone and different types of kisses that reflected your relationship. But when you kissed your rabbi on the cheek, it was was an expression of loyalty and obedience. So that's why Jesus said to him, with a kiss? With a kiss? So he kisses him. I love this part. I mean, my brother and I, my brother Kurt's here, we grew up with action movies, John Wayne's, those kind of things. And this is a John Wayne scene coming up here. We're probably dating ourselves. Maybe I should say Jason Bourne. But, you know, we love the John Wayne's. I know Nolan loves John Wayne's too, but just, you got to, this scene is awesome to me in God. So Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, and went out and asked them, who is it you want? They said, Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. And what does Jesus say? I am he. Actually, in the Greek, there is no he. He said, I am. He said, I am. Now, we've been studying this, my Oasis family. What does it mean when he says, I am? I am God. I am the great I am. That's what he's saying. He's using the name of God. I am the great I am. And he says it to him. What happens? Yeah, but hang on a second. I love this about John. 
Look what he says here before he gets to that point. He reminds us, he goes, and Judas the traitor was standing there with him. He already told us a few verses before that Judas was leading him, but he wants us to picture this scene, right? By the way, you got these thousand soldiers, you got all these temple guards, you got the priests in their fine robes all gathered together. By the way, Judas is right in the middle of them. I don't want you to miss that. And then he says, I am the great I am. And they all fall right on their butts. <laughs> right? They all fall straight backwards. And can you picture Judas in the middle of this whole thing? His hour in the sun's over. <laughs> He's humiliated as they fall down on their backsides. I mean, I just love this scene. I mean, you could see these guys. I mean, they have torches and lanterns. They're falling down. They're probably starting grass fires. And by the way, have you ever, fall, have you ever fallen down on a hill before? I got a picture. A couple guys are still going. You know, they're rolling all the way back down to Kidron Valley, back into the river covered in blood. Because if you've ever fallen down a hill, it's, it's not easy to stop yourself, especially if you're trying to hold a lantern and a sword. And so, I mean, this thing's a, you got a picture. It's probably complete chaos going on right here. What's going on with the horses? <sighs> what a beautiful scene. I also picture uh, Peter and the Sons of Thunder, right? I mean, they had, I mean, come on. They pulled their swords out. They're ready to go. And we'll see Peter actually did, right, a little bit later in the text. But I want you to see this. We not only serve a God that is all-knowing, we serve a God that is all-powerful. The power of God. Let me ask you this. Could have he killed them all with a word? (laughs) He could have. That's our God. He's all-powerful. I mean, think about the spoken word, that when he speaks... Everything changes. Right? He spoke and created the universe. He spoke the stars and the sun and the moon into existence. He, he spoke this world into existence, right? When he speaks, things change. How about this? When Jesus walked the, walked the earth, he stilled a storm with a word. He killed a fig tree with a word. He gave blind people sight. Lame walked. Lazarus raved from the dead when he spoke. Right? He doesn't need to lift a finger. He speaks and the world changes. We serve an all-powerful God. All-powerful God. And here in the garden, he speaks a word and knocks these guys on their butts. I'm sorry if that language is offensive, but they all fall down. That's our God. Now, let me show you this. Just one more about his spoken word. Look up here when he returns. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Do you see that? With a spoken word, he destroys nations when he comes back the second time. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will treads the winepress of fury of the wrath that's all about judgment of God. On the robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, that, that is the same Jesus. That is the same Jesus. But he was and he is all-knowing, and he was and he is all-powerful. You know, Satan and the demons tremble at his name. Do you think Satan is, there's a battle going on between Satan and Jesus? With a word he falls. With a word he falls. The demons, you remember, whenever they recognized it was Jesus when he walked the earth, they said, it's not our time yet. They went into a panic mode. They were scared to death. He changes the world system with a word. 
And through his word, we can defeat the spiritual battles in our own life, right? The flesh does not have to have victory over you. You can have victory over the flesh. You can have victory over the world. You can have victory over the, de- the devil and his demons. All by living according to his word, by the spirit that lives within you. God's word. God's word. One who controls all things. Now to me, just adding these things up here, knowing that God is all-knowing and the world doesn't make sense to me most of the time, I think to you too, I can trust that he's all-knowing. But, I mean, how much more knowing that he's all-powerful? There's not, there's not anything that God cannot stop or control in your life. He allows it to happen as his children. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute. But I want you to know that that should give you a great sense of peace to know that he's all-knowing and all-powerful. Right? Well, he teaches us another truth here. Let's go back to the text. And it says, uh, again, he asked them, who is it you want? I mean, come on, picture this scene, right? <laughs> Get back to the movie here. They're all still picking themselves up. A couple guys are still rolling down the hill, right? I mean, they're totally, they're totally full of fear. And, you know, and I got a feeling it's more like this. And who is it you want? They're probably like, and it's, by the way, the commander of the Romans would have to say it. Jesus of Nazareth, you know, they're probably pulling back, waiting to get blown away again, right? And everybody's all messed up, and it's just, I don't know, I just love it. That's our Lord. And then he says to them, uh, and he says, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. Now look at this. Why did he do all this? Why didn't he just wipe them out? Look what he says here. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. See, he's, he's being completely obedient to God, and his mission is to build the church of the disciples. So the whole point was, these guys come up, they're going to arrest him. First of all, let me go back. He picked the garden versus Jerusalem. Right? What would happen? Millions of people are coming in for Passover. What if they came to arrest him in Jerusalem? What do you think might have happened? Yeah. Yeah. It would have been a crazy thing, right? Riots would have erupted with all those people. And some, some of the disciples would have been arrested and probably killed. So he picked the place, the time, the hour, the moment. It's in a remote garden. And then guess what? When you've got a thousand soldiers and all that coming up and they all come out of this garden, don't you think they're going to arrest them all? They probably wanted to rest them all. So he blows them on their butts and then says again, who did you come for? <laughs> oh, you came for me? You came for me? Okay, well, it's just me you're taking then. That's what he's telling them. He says, then you just take me. Oh, oh yeah, okay, Jesus, we'll just take you, right? We'll just take you. you. You got it. We're on your side. As they're picking themselves off the ground, the priest probably got olive stains on their fancy robes. I mean, you got to picture this thing. But he did it so that not one of them would be lost so that they would continue on their mission and start the building of the church. Right? Here's the point here. He's not only all-knowing, he's not only all-powerful, but he's all-loving. He's all-loving. See, he, not one of them would be lost. Do you see that? I mean, it would be one thing if we served a God that was all-knowing and all-powerful, but he could be a tyrant. Right? He could be on a power trip, kind of like the... The Greek mythology gods, right? You never knew what they were going to do. That's not our God. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, but he's also all-loving. He's all-loving. 
so based on that, that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, that, okay, this, this brings the whole thing together. Stay with me here. So we don't know everything. We don't understand everything that happens to us that God allows, right? So we have peace knowing that he is all-knowing. We can be tempted to think that we're battling, that people are going to have victory in our lives like the devil, but he is all-powerful. He has power over the devil, so we don't have to worry about that. But here's the beautiful thing. It brings it all together. This is the umbrella. Don't miss this. Is that he's all-loving. So that he loves you so much that no matter what he allows in your life is for your good. Do you see that? It may not make sense to you. It doesn't have to make sense. You may think you're in a power struggle. You're not in a power struggle. And, and the main thing is, is that God is allowing those things in your life for your good because he loves you. So can't, I mean, can't you see how that just will give you a peace no matter what comes your way if you can understand those three things? Wow. Amen. Okay, one last piece of text here is uh, Peter. We've got to get to Peter. He pulls the sword out. Oops. Oops sorry, there it is. There he is. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. Right? Now, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, it says that uh, the disciples had all cried out, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Right? All the disciples yelled that out. Obviously, Pete didn't wait for an answer. Right? He, he, was, he was already engaged. He wasn't going to wait for the answer. He got the sword. I mean, he had to have flashbacks to King David, right? You know, all right, Jesus knocked them down. We'll cut off all their heads, right? I mean, that's what Peter's probably thinking. Because he still had that thought of this was going to be an earthly kingdom. What a perfect time. Jesus knocks them down. We'll cut off their heads. And uh, I guess the question is, if that happened, if, if, if they'd cut off the heads of these guys, what would happen to them? What would happen to the church? Yeah, there wouldn't be one, right, Nolan, because they would have persecuted. I mean, these guys had to, they'd be in constant hiding to be persecuted and chased down by the Roman soldiers, which controlled the country at the time, the, the modern country. They would have found them and killed them. So Jesus didn't want them to cut off any heads that day. You know, it's. Yeah. I've said this many times, but it's, it's a, such a temptation in believers' lives. I'll have to say it again because it's in the text, is that many Christians live out their will and ask God to bless it. And it could be good works, it could be great works, but there is a specific job and work that God wants you involved in. And the hard part for us is to wait for it. We, just like the disciples, have to say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? and then wait for the answer. And I tell you, the waiting for me is as hard as the call. The waiting is hard as the call. So that, that's what we see here in the text. So Jesus tells him what? Command Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then we'll see in other text that Peter, uh, Jesus reaches over and creates a new ear on the, on the servant's ear. He replaces it. He creates a new ear. Now, Come on, if you were there, you got knocked on your backside by some supernatural power of God, then he gets up and makes a new ear. I don't know, I think that would get my attention. So maybe, maybe we shouldn't be arresting this guy, right? <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't stop him because obviously it's God's plan, they're blinded by the truth, 
And as we'll see next week, they arrest him and bind him and take him away for, for trial. What I want you to see here, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus closes this with, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You know, we talked about in our lives, many times it doesn't make sense. There's difficulties that come in our life, loss of job, divorce, death, all kinds of things. Um, but we know God's all-knowing. We know he's all-powerful. And we know he's, he's all-loving. I mean, think about Jesus himself. He just got done praying three times, Father, would you take this cup from me? Right? Can you imagine anything more difficult than that? That you're going to bear the sins of the world? That you're going to be separated from your Father? But what did he choose to do? Obedience. Obedience. See, that, that is how we respond in life, brothers and sisters. It won't make sense. You won't understand it. And you're, you're in my responsibility is to live a life of obedience. It doesn't, make, it doesn't matter if it makes sense to us. It doesn't matter what the world's screaming in our ear. We have to choose, as God reveals His truth to us, to obey it. And if we obey it, we'll be blessed, we'll be transformed in the image of Christ, and we'll be living the life that God calls us to live. I'll give you one more. I'm going to hit you one more time here. Which is that what you'll find is that God will not reveal a new truth to you until you're faithful to the truth he's already revealed to you. Did you hear that? He will not reveal another truth to you until you're faithful for the one he's already revealed to you. That's the process of transformation. It's a principle. It's not a biblical truth, but it's a principle of Christian life. So as God reveals truth to you, your, your, your responsibility is obedience, knowing that he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-loving. Whatever he's commanding you to do is for your best absolute best, even when it doesn't make sense, and then you'll be transformed into the image of Christ. Jesus did it. We can do it too. His, his task was much harder than ours would ever be. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are just so grateful for these truths in your word, these everlasting unexhaustible truths of your living word. And Father, I just pray, I, I, know, I know in this place there's heartaches, there's struggles, uh, there's people doubting you, and what are you doing to me? And uh, Lord, I've been there. And Father, I just pray that for each of these dear brothers and sisters, by the spirit that lives within them, that you would help them understand that your plan is the only plan that has any significance, meaning, purpose, peace, hope, love, Help us to continually remind ourselves that you're all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving. And we will humbly submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.